it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, October 25th, 2022. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you so much for listening. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, then around the clock, on demand for free on our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. You can also follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. I'm the political editor at TownHall.com, a Fox News contributor, and we are two weeks away to the day from Election Day 2022. We are getting so close. The stakes are very high. We're going to be talking about a number of those big races over the course of today's program with, among others, Brian Kilmeade, our Fox News colleague, of course, here at Fox News Radio and from Fox and Friends. He'll be here later this hour. Senator Ted Cruz, Texas, will be here also in our middle hour. He had a very interesting few days in New York City at The View at Yankee Stadium. We'll talk to him about all of that, plus what he's seeing on the ground over the course of this bus tour he's taken to boost Republican candidates all around the country. Sean Trendy also in our final hour. Sean is right up there, like in my mind, on the Mount Rushmore of election analysts on the scene today. Sean is one of the four, for sure. Very smart, very thoughtful. What is he seeing? What is he hearing? The data, the trends, the history. He knows all of it backwards and forwards, and we will ask him about it as we are two weeks out, coming up in our final hour here today. I want to open the show with a topic that we just barely glanced upon yesterday because it merits a lot more discussion. And the way that this whole conversation around some new data has gone, I will confess to you it is making me crazy. It is making me livid. The data that we touched on yesterday is the so-called national scorecard for American students. And across the board, everyone's admitting that the numbers that just came in are horrible. Plunging numbers on proficiency, mastery. This is for fourth graders and eighth graders all across the country. It's a baseline. New York Times, just to remind you, Reporting it this way, U.S. students in most states and across almost all demographic groups have experienced troubling setbacks in both math and reading, according to an authoritative national exam released Monday, offering the most definitive indictment yet of the pandemic's impact on millions of schoolchildren. In math, the results were especially devastating, representing the steepest declines ever recorded on the National Assessment of Educational Progress, known as the nation's report card. It's a broad sampling of 4th and 8th graders dating back to the early 1990s. Reading scores also declined in more than half of the states. So it's very bad. Predictably, I would say obviously, it's very bad. We had a hugely disruptive pandemic. Large swaths of the country shut down. Schools in some places were closed 
for a year and a half, remote learning a debacle for millions of kids. And now we are starting to measure what happened in some sort of quantifiable way, and the outcomes are deeply disturbing. This is like part of a generation set way back. And some people who might have been marginal and struggling to begin with just gone. It's crushing to their futures. This was not just predictable, it was predicted. It's why a lot of us were pushing hard for the reopening of schools as soon as possible, especially once we saw what was happening in other parts of the world where they didn't close their schools and things were fine. The kids, by and large, were thriving. Education was going on in person. There were not huge outbreaks and super spreader events in these classrooms. Those lessons in many parts of this country went completely ignored, assiduously ignored for political reasons. Now, what's making me crazy about this report card is that people who advocated the school closures and apologized for the school closures, Randy Weingarten and company, they are taking this and declaring victory or vindication because there is not a perfect correlation, a neat, easy correlation between states that were closed longer versus opened earlier and the trajectory downward in student outcomes. They're like, see, it didn't matter what we did. Whether the schools were open or closed, everyone suffered, and so this was all about politics and we were right. It blows my mind that after all of this, after all of the data, I'm going to run through it here in a second, just a sampling of it, after all of the information that we've gathered, plus just basic common sense, we still have a lot of people so invested in their disastrous, politically motivated decisions inflicted on children and harming them for no good reason in an anti-science way. They're so invested in defending it and justifying it that they will cite data, broad data, and basically be like, see, good, no regrets. We were right all along. Weingarten herself, quoting a left-wing piece in the Washington Post, cheering on social media. It turns out that all the bitter back and forth between red and blue states about how quickly to reopen schools during the COVID-19 pandemic was nothing but political theater. As far as test scores are concerned, student performance suffered across the board. That's her quote, quoting this piece in the Washington Post, being like, oh yeah, it was all just a, a political fight. Just political theater. Set aside the data for a second. We're going to get right back to it. If you're a parent, if you know people with kids, if you know young kids, think for one moment if this makes any sense. Kids stuck at home, sometimes with unreliable internet, unreliable computers and screens, being asked to do hours of supposed school virtually month after month after month for a year and a half. There's no difference between that and kids being actually in classrooms, interacting, having a teacher present there, instructing them. If this is actually what they believe, maybe when, I don't want to give her any ideas, but maybe Randy Weingarten should just call for the end of in-person schooling completely. Like, oh, well, if, if kids were just, just as bad at home versus in the classroom, she is once again making the case that schools are kind of inessential. 
They're not an essential part of society. Just put everyone on Zoom. If it made no difference, which is what she's trying to pretend is the case here, what does that say about in-person schooling, in-person instruction? Now, she's wrong about this. This is a political point, and again, it just it is mad-making to have someone like this, a true villain of the pandemic, responsible for so much harm, the alteration of real science to fit her political agenda thanks to the deep-pocketed influence of the special interests that she represents, all about the self-interest of adults, not the well-being or education of children, and she actually has the gall to be like, yep, See, look, the the scores all went down. It was across the board. It was a big disaster for everyone. Not our fault. Didn't make a difference. It's absolutely wrong. Even within the new broad data, which a lot of experts are saying is way too crude, far too broad to draw any big conclusions like she's trying to draw here, but even within this data, Jason Bedrick at the Heritage Foundation notes that, quote, declines in math scores, math in particular, are correlated with school closures. The longer a state school stayed closed, the worse the drop in math scores on average. So there was a correlation, especially in math, right? Reading, you might have some reading instruction and help from parents at home math. Math curriculum, that's a different story. Bedrick points out that 10 points on these tests, these national tests, is considered one grade level. Ten points, that's the interval. So the data means that fourth grade students whose classes were entirely or mostly online are about one grade level behind those who had in-person instruction. And this is on math. So even the lazy analysis that they're trying to spin us with based on this data alone is wrong. A number of advocates pointing out that public schools... And their students performed about overall half a grade level worse. This is on average grade four in math than parochial school students, Catholic school students. Now, you could say maybe there's a difference in quality, but you can also point out that Catholic schools, private schools were much more likely to be open than public schools. And not to make it overly political, but the bluer the place, the longer the schools were closed, almost without exception. I mean, there is a clear coalition there. Coalition of the left, coalition of the right, their priorities. And I think history is indicting one and vindicating the other. And yet the people who should be feeling indicted are still trying to claim vindication. Is wild. Phil Kirpin, a policy expert on the right, he also points out that based on this data, remote learning appears to have been much tougher for lower-performing students, like before the pandemic, kids who were already struggling, than for more higher-performing students. So there was an increase in the performance gap. Kids who were having trouble fell further behind. You would think that the equity crowd would care about this, but they're too busy covering their own asses for the horrible decisions that they made and endorsed and justified for the better part of two years. Now, there's other data as well, and this is so important, and there's a bunch of experts who are pushing back against the top-line conclusions from Randy Weingarten and others. 
And you can go through a couple of them. There's a guy, a professor at Ohio State, who's really dug into this. He says state-level data, not really that helpful for for isolating effect of in-person versus online learning. He said because there were huge within-state variations in mode of learning in each state. He writes, this is the Professor Kogan at Ohio State. Fortunately, we have many studies that use student-level data and have access to administrative records about the mode of instruction and can directly examine differences by mode, meaning at home, hybrid, or in person. They all show, he says, all, they all show significant negative effects of distance learning. Of course they do. We all understand this in our bones, intuitively, of course that's the case. But you have hacks actually trying to argue the opposite, so here we are pushing back. And I'll tie this into the midterms as well. Professor Kogan concludes, the bottom line is the evidence on mode of instruction is overwhelming. We don't need this new data to answer the question. We have much better evidence and already knew the answer. There was a Harvard analysis that found, quote, the more weeks spent remote in terms of remote learning, the larger the drop in test scores. That was a Harvard analysis. A journalist named David Zwieg, we've quoted him before, he's written at The Atlantic, New York Magazine, New York Times, not a right-winger. He says the new test scores from the Education Department out this week and the New York Times, quote, are misleading because a lot of people are now concluding remote school didn't correlate with lower scores. That's because state data are so crude, right? It's just too broad of a brush. He said multiple analyses comparing districts show an overt uh, correlation, an overt correlation between time out of school and learning loss. And I posted this at townhall.com earlier. I highlighted his thread on my Twitter feed, and he goes through. He talks about the Ohio study that I mentioned. There's a study at Brown that was quite definitive on this exact point. More remote days, worse academic outcomes. He cites Harvard, which I mentioned, and a whole host of other specific studies. The jury isn't out on this one. We're not sitting here wondering, oh, gosh, if only we knew. Was in-person schooling or at-home distance learning better? Were there any differences? The answer resoundingly, overwhelmingly is yes. And we have a huge mountain of data That proves it already. And then some people are seizing on only certain cherry-picked parts of this crude top-line data to allege that all of that is wrong. And they were right. And it just didn't matter where kids were. It's false. One more example I'll give is Sweden. Sweden was under immense criticism, you'll remember, especially in 2020, because they were not shutting down and doing a bunch of mandates. This absolutely applied to schools in Sweden. A lot of the rest of the world was sneering at Sweden. This is so irresponsible. Look at what they're doing, a human sacrifice. They actually turned out okay. When you look at the scheme of Europe, for example, on mortality, And a big, huge, gold-plated study out of Sweden on education found no learning loss. They didn't close their schools, no appreciable learning loss for primary 
school students in Sweden. Just yet another piece of evidence on this front. And yet Randy Weingarten, very influential, deep pockets from her special interests and a lot of her followers and the Democrats that she controls, they're going to look at some of this stuff and say, oh, see, these weird right-wingers were wrong. It didn't matter if kids were in school or not. It's, I mean, it's an amazing self-own for a teacher's union boss to say, but that's kind of what she's trying to do purely for political reasons. I hope she keeps going around saying it. May she be as successful for her party this year as she was last year in Virginia. And I'll say one more time, as I've said many times before, there has not been a national referendum on all of this. COVID, schools, kids, remote learning, politicized science, all of it. We have not had a full national election with all of this data since COVID happened. That happens in two weeks. We have one in two weeks. They feel like we moved past it. They feel like it's over. They feel like they can gaslight us on this stuff. Like, oh, it just didn't matter. See, you were wrong all along, parents, weirdos. Didn't matter. No difference. Well, if you agree, you can ratify that by putting these people back in power. If not, you can make a different choice. 14 days. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus. They've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. I've just been to Buckingham Palace and accepted His Majesty the King's invitation to form a government in his name. It is only right to explain why I'm standing here as your new Prime Minister. Right now, our country is facing a profound economic crisis. The aftermath of Covid still lingers. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets and supply chains the world over. Earlier today, Rishi Sunak, the new prime minister in the UK, speaking to the British people. He has a huge task ahead of him to try to rein in the chaos within the Tory party and bring some semblance of function, functionality back to their governing majority ahead of the next election in 2025. Sunak was congratulated by our president earlier who called him Rashid Sanuk. 
Well done as usual, Mr. President. Nailed it. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Brian Kilmeade joins us on the other side of this break. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, our online home here at the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. Still to come, Senator Ted Cruz and Sean Trendy of Real Clear Politics. Looking forward to that. But we begin with our first guest of the day. It's Brian Kilmeade, host of the Brian Kilmeade Show here on Fox News Radio. Co-host, of course, of Fox and Friends every morning, Monday through Friday on Fox News Channel. Also, One Nation Saturdays on FNC He's a best-selling author. His latest best-selling book is The President and the Freedom Fighter. It is available now in paperback. Brian, it's great to have you back here. Guy, thanks for having me on. Lots going on. (laughs) No kidding. I want to ask you first and foremost about the New York governor's race. I, I want to believe. I would love to see Lee Zeldin pull this thing out. I think things have really gotten tighter. It is still such a blue state overall but Kathy Hochul is not looking like a confident politician right now, is she? Why should she be? I mean, she's a Buffalo hack. Uh, she has no relationship with Governor Cuomo. Uh, Cuomo is, uh, I think he's talented, but he's a thug and he has no friends. But he's, uh, politically, he's a political heavyweight. And I believe that the Cuomo people want to see her lose. I don't think there's any doubt about it. So you have some Democrats wanting to see her lose. Her being an incompetent, terrible, lazy campaigner who wants to talk about abortion 24-7, and she's, he's going against somebody that's got a lot of credibility. So Lee Zeldin's got the military background. He's been in Congress forever. They want to say that he is for zero weeks for abortion. They want to say that he's a Trump disciple, and both things are just not true. And when that when crime overwhelms, when inflation is present, when the economy goes south, and she only wants to do fundraisers and talk abortion, that leaves her a wide-open guy. An upset could happen tonight with a great showing at Pace University in the one and only debate. Yeah, because she hasn't really been that eager to debate either. We've seen that from a lot of Democrats. She's probably now happy to have a debate because she needs to regain some momentum. It might not go well for her. We'll see how it, it goes down this evening. But we saw over the weekend some news stories, you know, the New York Times writing about it and, and others saying, oh, well, the Democrats in New York are – Uh, waking up to the reality that crime is a potent issue for many voters. And I mean, when I've been up there for work, you know, on business trips, I'll put the TV on at night. I'll be in the hotel room and there's a bunch of ads. And yeah, Kathy Hochul, if you see ads, it's abortion in January 6th. Lee Zeldin's out there talking crime, crime, crime and inflation every day. Of course, he had that criminal incident right outside his home in Long Island. And it's like two weeks out or two and a half weeks out. Suddenly the governor of this state up in New York that is experiencing so many people experiencing such a bad wave of crime. It's like right before an election with the poll numbers slipping. She's like, oh, actually, no, we care very deeply about this. We're going to do some big things on crime. It just seems transparent. You wonder if people will be fooled by that. I don't think so. Uh, And here's why. She didn't come out and say crime across the board is up 36 percent, which is true. 
that transit crime is uh, that cops is only 2,500 transit cops. And at the time in which subways were actually safe, we had six million people traveling on them and we had 4,000 plus cops. She came out and said, basically, the numbers are down. But if you feel threatened, I'm not going to tell you you don't have a reason to feel threatened, but the numbers say you shouldn't be. But if you feel that way, it's okay. And you threw it together on a Saturday just to cover your to check a box. And I was like, guy, for your original premise is right on the money. If anything, if you want to say what you want about New Yorkers, they're street smart. They understand manipulation and sincerity. Whatever you think about Lee Zeldin, he's very sincere. You're not going to touch him, and he'll outwork you. He shows up at every crime scene, even if no people that show up are small-town news, small-town papers with iPhones. And he'll show up every single time. He'll say the problem. He'll address the press, and he'll make sure the New York Post or New York Daily News understands that he was there, so they have to cover it. And now the issues are coming back to him. They weren't taking him serious. But keep in mind, that was a bruising primary. Andrew Giuliani got over 20%. There was some, I think his name was Henry Wilson, some billionaire, decided he wanted to run. And then you, uh, and then you had um, uh, Rob Astorino also run. So there was a, that was a primary in which they had to spend a lot of money and time for Zeldin to wrap it up. So I think that he's hitting his stride now. I think there's an excellent chance he could close the gap because Kathy Hochul's without talent. And the thing is, Brian, let's just say that it ends up being a single-digit race. And I'm not, I'm not ruling out the possibility of a massive upset. It would really be an earthquake. If, if Zeldin wins, that's an earthquake, and the route is on nationwide. But even if he's genuinely in the single digits and it's a close race and she's sweating it out, that has implications. I made this point last night on Special Report. There are six or seven big house races in New York. And you better believe that if Zeldin is hugely performing – you know, overperforming statewide, he's probably doing pretty darn well in those swing districts where there are very important house races. So, I mean, the fact that he's really fighting and she's flailing matters on a national scale as well for people who might not be focused on New York politics. New York City politics, also interesting here, Brian, on Fox 5, our affiliate down there, or up there, I should say, the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, was talking about crime, situal, uh, situational awareness, Here's what he said in the interview just the other day. Cut 33. I haven't put my AirPods in for over a year because I feel like I need to be very much aware. That's quality of life issue. You 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 were right about, you know, not having your iPods in, not focusing on our phone. And I say yes to that. I do the same. And we put out a, a video and information telling people about being aware of what's around them and what's taking place. And I encourage New Yorkers to do that. All right, Brian, I mean, I'm all in favor of situational awareness and maybe not being buried in your phone if there are threats around. But for the mayor of New York City to encourage all New Yorkers as a matter of course, don't be on your phone, don't be listening to music, be looking around for criminals that might be coming to attack you. I, I think that's sort of an admission of the reality in that city. You and I, uh, former tag team, it will make citizens arrest because cops don't want to do it because <laughs> they're going to get sued. Uh, they're not getting supported. So basically, we all have to become UFC fighters, and we all have to be able to handle a weapon and be able to disarm somebody. Because remember, I could have my Walkman on. I could have my big headset on. I could be wearing, uh, wearing an astronaut's cap, and I could not be able to stop that the last assailant that we saw would take a huge run and knock somebody who wasn't even by the edge over the top, break his shoulder, and this guy turns out to have spent 20 years in prison 
on, on attempted murder charges. His whole family hates him and says he's a danger, and he's left on the platform. So this guy took a run and knocked another random guy onto the tracks. Thankfully, no train was coming. I don't care what's in your ears. You're not stopping that. And Eric Adams would go over, too. There's just no police presence. I'm not sure what's happening, but it's not working. And then you have that other story of 4, 000, projected 4,000 cops are going to retire by the end of the year. That surpasses last year by about 1,000. They're taking less pension. I guess over 10 years you get medical, and they're saying, that's fine. I'll, get, I'll have another career. I quit. And that's because they're not supported. No one's complaining about the pay, which is not good. But they're complaining about the lack of support and lack of respect they're getting, which has to come from the top. One other thing about Lee Zeldin's debate, don't give Hochul any credit. She always, she chose New York one only. What about the people in Albany? What about the people in Buffalo? What about the people in Montauk? Mm-hmm. They're not allowed to see it unless they get Spectrum TV. Uh, they got to go find it. So she wants to do one debate for one hour in at Pace University, uh, only to air on New York one. And I, I think that is that is gutless. I mean, show. I mean, look at Governor DeSantis didn't have to debate. He's up by ten. He had had all downside. That's an experience of former governor he was going against who knows all the Republican issues because he was one. There's danger in that for him. But he said, no, no, I'm going to debate. I I I have to win an election. Why wouldn't I debate? And, you know, and we're watching her just trying to run out the clock, which I think is a bad sign if she's successful for politicians, that if you're in the lead, you don't have to engage. Well, so far, the running out the clock strategy has not been working very well for her. Ron DeSantis is a confident politician. She does not appear to be one. We'll be talking about the Florida debate last night later in the show. A bunch of sound to play from that. And since you brought up Florida, let's just zoom out from New York, Brian. You interview a lot of these candidates. So do we here on the radio. You, of course, talk to some of the biggest candidates all the time on Fox and Friends. What are you hearing? What's your general sense of what's going to happen two weeks from today? It's almost as if the Democrats have, as you mentioned, woken up to crime. But, you know, it's the, the most brilliant thing has happened. Uh, I don't think Republicans deserve credit for this. I think Democrats and just the climate today, the political landscape has changed. Every issue that matters to Americans outside democracy, which is a 50-50 fear of uh, democracy being taken away, uh, has tre- trended towards Republican passions. They're passionate about law and order. They're passionate about the border. They're passionate about getting inflation down. They're passionate about the spending. They're passionate about, uh, as I mentioned, the crime. So all these issues have come to the forefront, thanks to Republican governors, Abbott and DeSantis. Now we care about the border as a country, not just a uh, not just conservative Republicans, not just border states, because we've been uh, busing them to major Democratic cities, making everybody take note and realizing their arguments are ridiculous. Mm-hmm. The sanctuary city, and you're going to complain about people coming for sanctuary really and you really el paso deserves to be abused but manhattan doesn't really go ahead expand on that argument i i got time martha's vineyard can't handle it <laughs> yeah uh, so martha's cruel Vineyard can't handle it yeah uh, but the rio grand valley has to go okay I'm, I'm willing i'm all ears so that they made them pay attention and it is it's one of those things issues guy i don't know if you feel there's some issues that you take to bed with you uh, that border issue, I can't get out of my head because I've been there. Uh, yep. And you go there, and I, I've Same. been in times when it wasn't that bad, and I was still had uh, PTSD. I can't believe what what four million people coming through the border illegally is like. 
No, it's wild. And in fact, they dumped out on Friday night at like 11 o'clock the horrible numbers from September and finishing up the fiscal year. Just extraordinarily disastrous numbers in the border crisis. And they did that to try to get us to ignore it over the weekend and have it dissipate. I led the show yesterday with it because they don't want us talking about it because it's a huge failure. It's on them. And that's why we don't let that issue go, even if it's not the one that, you know, is is the driving issue of the election, although it's one of them. Uh, you're right. It just it sticks with me for some reason. It really bothers me. I want to lighten things up, Brian, before we let you go and shift to sports. The World Series starts on Friday. I am struggling on this one because I can't stand Philly sports, but I really can't stand the Astros. Uh, who you got in the World Series and why? I, I can't imagine the Astros not winning at all. Uh, yeah. I mean, to win in 18 innings by scoring one run, uh, to win by a two-run homer in the first against the Mariners, uh, to dominate the Yankees with seven different pitchers is as demic as the Yankees look. They got something going on, and they've won it before, and they got something to prove. And they got the Dusty Baker factor. Never won it all despite everything he achieved as a player and a manager. The most liked guy in baseball coming out of retirement in order to take a team uh, there was the middle of a scandal. They're the only ones thankful that the pandemic hit because people stopped focusing on their cheating. So I do think this is their time. You know, Philly's the hottest team. The Astros are the best team. So I, I would put my money on, on Texas. Yeah, I mean, Phillies are red hot, but the Astros haven't lost in the postseason. They're undefeated in the postseason. I think I'll be rooting for the Phillies, but I would pick the Astros if I were a betting man. Game one, Friday night, 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox. Brian Kilmeade, host of the Brian Kilmeade Show here on Fox News Radio, Fox and Friends every morning, which he co-hosts. Saturdays, he's got One Nation also on Fox News Channel. And his latest best-selling book, The President and the Freedom Fighter, is out right now on paperback. Brian, you got a lot going on. We appreciate you carving out a little time for us. Uh, Guy, thanks for the invite. Uh, Best of luck. Continued success. Talk to you soon. You bet. Thanks, sir. And we'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back on The Guy Benson Show. Quick programming note. Tomorrow, here on the program, we have Martha McCallum joining us from Pennsylvania after tonight's big debate in that Senate race. We also have Senator Rick Scott, the NRSC chairman from Florida. He will be here. We'll talk race by race over the Senate map with him. And also, we get him every so often, Tucker Carlson here tomorrow, top of the show. Right after 3 p.m. Eastern time, he's got a new special coming out on the Arizona Senate race. Blake Masters, who's been a guest on this program, we'll talk to him about that. News of the day and much more. Tucker Carlson on The Guy Benson Show tomorrow, right at the beginning of the show after 3 p.m. Eastern time. I want to play a soundbite. This is Cut 30. This is Katie Hobbs, who is running for governor out in Arizona, who is uh, not very eager to talk to the press that often, although she's doing more of that because she's refusing to debate her actual opponent, Carrie Lake. She'd rather talk to generally friendly journalists than to her Republican opponent. I've made no mystery about the fact that I'm not a huge Carrie Lake fan, although I think she's pretty talented. Right As a retail politician, in terms of her answers, I think she's got some chops. Developed over years as a news anchor, she's smooth. She's pretty good at it. I have some issues with what she said and what she stands for. I agree with a lot of what she now stands for. But I'm not like a Carrie Lake fan. But, man, Katie Hobbs is just pathetic. Debate your opponent. Show up. It's a purple state. 
a, a, a 50-50 toss-up race. Debate your damn opponent. She won't do it. And the more I see from her, the less impressed I am. Like, can this woman really win in Arizona? I know that state is getting bluer, but man. She was asked by reporters, pretty simple question about COVID vaccines. Should they be required for students to get a COVID vaccine in order to attend schools in Arizona? Because the CDC is going to recommend it, but it would be up to the states to decide. I think it's a bad recommendation by the CDC. In fact, we should get one of our doctors back on, McCary or Sapphire or any of them. Because I want to talk about the CDC's recommendation here. They're coming under fire from a lot of other doctors and experts saying that is exactly the wrong thing to recommend. Some people will view that as an excuse to mandate it. But the question in Arizona for Katie Hobbs, who wants to be governor out there, would you require it? Would you add the COVID vax for children as a requirement as part of that vaccine schedule in order just to be able to show up and go to school? And it became very clear that she had no idea what the reporter was talking about and then was noncommittal and cut 30. Would you allow the COVID vaccine to go on the vaccine schedule for children to attend school? Uh, is that... I, I, is, Sorry, so the CDC oh. is um, sort of moving toward adding the, the COVID vaccine to the recommendation for um, you know school vaccines. It's up to the states to actually decide what's on that list for in their state. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, would your Department of Health Services put the COVID vaccine on the list of required vaccines for, for children in school? Uh, that is not something I have contemplated, so... So her first answer to the question was, uh, what? So then he very patiently explains the issue to her. You'd think that she should be aware of this. There's been a lot of chatter around this. She wants to run the state. I know that she's done a poor job as secretary of state. They just made a big error in her office because she never shows up to work. That was another thing that's been revealed recently. Now she wants a promotion to governor. She didn't know anything about this. Uh, So then the guy explains it to her, and the response is, that is not something I have contemplated. So, yeah. Is that an admission that she has a plan that she doesn't want to say before the election? I.e., she would require kids to get this shot that a lot of doctors say they shouldn't get? Young kids? especially as a prerequisite to go to school? Hasn't there been enough damage? Or does she have no idea what she thinks about this? Has no position on it, and she'll just, like, outsource that thinking to someone else? I don't know. It's just not a great look or moment for her. No wonder she won't debate. Another hour coming up. Ted Cruz is here next on The Guy Benson Show. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free on demand every day when the show is over. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us there. Fox News alert as we enter our middle hour. The Dow closing up 337 points today, closing at 31,837. Consumer confidence down, which I guess the market likes because it means the economy is slowing down, which means inflation might ease and the Fed might ease off. 
that's, I think, the overall thinking per Stuart Varney and company this morning, but another day on Wall Street in the green. Joining us now is U.S. Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas, author of a brand new book, Justice Corrupted, How the Left Weaponized Our Legal System. And Senator, welcome back to the show. Guy, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. You bet. So there's a lot of things I want to get to you and and talk to you about. Before we do that, if you would, maybe just give our audience the elevator pitch for this book, Justice Corrupted. Well, sure. Justice Corrupted, which came out today, uh, exposes how the Biden administration and before him the Barack Obama administration have politicized and weaponized the Department of Justice, the FBI, the IRS, and the machinery of the federal government – to target their political enemies. We have seen over and over again this administration going after their enemies, whether it is the FBI raiding President Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago, the first time in the history of our nation that's ever happened, or the FBI sending in uh, agents with rifles drawn to arrest pro-life activists in front of their screaming children, or tragically, the, the attorney general directing the FBI to target parents, moms and dads who go to school boards and speak up and to target them as domestic terrorists, over and over again, this administration has demonstrated that it is willing to use the law enforcement tools of the federal government as a a weapon to attack their political opponents, and that is profoundly dangerous. The book Justice Corrupted explains how they're doing it, why they're doing it, and, and, and gives the inside story of what's really happening. And that book, Justice Corrupted, out today. Last time we spoke, Senator, here on the air, you were just embarking on a bus tour, and you were going to hit all sorts of races in multiple states. What have you seen? What have you heard on the ground? What is your sense 14 days out from a critical election? Well, I'm very encouraged with where we are. I'm on the bus tour now. It's it's a month-long, nationwide, 17-state bus tour. Uh, I'm right now in North Carolina. We started in Texas. We went from Texas uh, to New Mexico, to Arizona, to Nevada, to Utah, to Kansas, to Missouri, to Iowa, to Ohio, to Maryland, Virginia. We're in North Carolina. Next we go to Georgia, to Florida, to Michigan, and then back to the great state of Texas. And and I got to tell you, Guy, what I'm seeing everywhere People are energized. They're ready to take back the House. They're ready to take back the Senate. I think we're going to win both in November, and I think people are really frustrated by the direction we're on right now. They're, they're frustrated out of their minds with inflation and with crime and with chaos at our southern border, and they're ready to change the path we're on. You took a detour from the bus tour to New York. Couldn't help but notice you had a fun, interesting time at Yankee Stadium, then a fun, interesting time on The View. Uh, In fact, it wasn't just the grief that you got from the co-host of The View, but some people in the audience decided to heckle as well. Here's some of that chaos in Cut 29. Inflation has one cause and one cause only. Inflation in the United States has one cause and one cause only, and that is when the federal government spends too much money. Okay. We have seen trillions and trillions of dollars spent by Joe Biden and the Democrats. Just we do cover climate here, guys. Me. We do cover excuse climate. Excuse me. Ladies, ladies, excuse us. Let us do our job. Let us do our job. We hear what you have to say, but you got to go. 
And so Whoopi, a little exasperated with the protesters, uh, that was probably uh, an interesting memory for you, Senator. Well, it was that ridiculous fun. Uh, Yes, there were left wing (laughs) protesters who were screaming and yelling and and hurtling uh, expletives. Uh, And and I got to say, I think it rattled the hosts quite a bit. Um, But, you know, look, the reason to go on The View is 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 I think conservatives spend too much time preaching to the choir. And, And I think we need to do a lot more talking to young people, talking to Hispanics, talking to African-Americans, talking to suburban moms, the folks that are really paying the price for, for the policy mistakes of this radical administration, but, but who are not hearing a common-sense conservative message. And, and so I think it was valuable for the folks who watch The View uh, to, to hear a, a bit of common sense, to hear about the book Justice Corrupted, to hear about how dangerous it is to have uh, the Biden administration willing to use the the tools of law enforcement to persecute their their political enemies. When the IRS begins singling out uh, Tea Party groups, conservative groups, the enemies of the White House, is a dangerous road. I'll tell you, it was striking. Also, guy, I, 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 Whoopi Goldberg later in the show uh, got got angry, and she said, you know, as 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 all leftists in the media are she's obsessed with january 6th and she said you know you republicans you're you're violent and 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 a mob and she said we don't do that we're not we don't engage violence and i actually laughed at her and i said "Did, did did you not pay attention to a year of antifa riots all over the country where cities all across the country burned mm-hmm. and Whoopi looked at me confused and said i don't know what you're talking about i don't know of any antifa riots and, that's and I think wild. that's what her viewers see is they just have no awareness of what's actually going on in the country. Well, you had another sort of moment just like that on the set of The View, and they were all ganging up on you. And I know you were expecting that, including the you know the conservative on, on set. I guess she has to do what she has to do over there. But you were talking about election denialism. That was something that they were coming after you on. And you had a bunch of quotes, right? You had – the receipts from Democrats, even from some of these hosts themselves. And there was no sense of self-awareness about that. And when you were calling out the hypocrisy, it seemed like Whoopi Goldberg was like, no, the election denial by Republicans is dangerous and wrong. The election denial by Democrats is good and correct. It was just kind of like making the point for you, even though she may not have quite understood that in the moment. Look, that that is exactly right. I pointed out that Democrats have been doing this forever, that Hillary Clinton sat on their show and was illegitimate, an illegitimate president and was not fairly elected, and all the hosts nodded in agreement. Stacey Abrams sat on their show and insisted that Kemp had stolen the governorship in, in Georgia, and they all nodded in agreement. And I point out, look, this even goes back well before the age of Trump, where, where Democrats insisted, Joe Biden insisted that Al Gore won the election and George W. Bush was illegitimately elected. And, and Whoopi's reaction was, well, they all were. And I'm like, wait a second. So it's, it's when Republicans win, it's, it's <laughs> stolen. But when Democrats win, it's not. And she's basically like, yep, that's my position. It, it is. Well, it's just baby thinking. Yeah, no, that, 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 that's exactly right.
I don't know what else to say. I mean, I, I think when conservatives or Republicans deny an election wrongly, that's bad and they shouldn't do it. And especially if things get violent, that's awful and I condemn it completely. The other side has done this type of thing. They celebrate their people when they do it. Stacey Abrams became a superstar and very rich because of her election denial. And they're sort of like, oh, well, that's because we're right and we're good and you're bad and you're evil. I mean, it's just like it, it's not any more complicated than that. And yet it's it's extremely juvenile. And I think it completely undercuts all of their pearl-clutching, hand-wringing uh, over the election denial stuff. Senator, speaking of, speaking of, preemptively, we have some next election denial, at least the groundwork being laid for it, by someone that you just mentioned, Hillary Clinton. I guess she's still out there giving interviews and this sort of thing, and she is predicting that the next election might be stolen by the Republicans. Cut 32. Listen to this. Right-wing extremists already have a plan to literally steal the next presidential election. And they're not making a secret of it. The right-wing controlled Supreme Court may be poised to rule on giving state legislatures, yes, you heard me that correctly, state legislatures the power to overturn presidential elections. All right, so we got a little dash of delegitimizing the Supreme Court in there, which goes to your point, Justice Corrupted, the book that you've written. But when you hear that from Mrs. Clinton, Senator, what is your reaction? Well, it's ludicrous. It's scaremongering. And and what the Democrats do over and over again is any election that they don't win, they engage in, in, to use their phrase, election denialism. They also uh, brazenly support voter fraud. You know, in, in the book Justice Corrupted, I walk through the evidence of voter fraud, the pattern of it, and, and I also include, for the first time ever, an inside account of what happened on January 6th. Remember, I was standing on the Senate floor leading the Senate objections, and I lay, laid through what the legal basis of that was, what the factual basis of that was, and, and, and as you know, President Trump asked me to personally argue the case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, had the Supreme Court taken that case. And so I lay it out. It's the first inside account of what was happening. And, and part of the reason for writing this book uh, is, is guy to, to, to equip people across this country to know what the actual facts are and the actual truth is rather than the, the corporate media spin. And, and what Hillary Clinton is doing there is, is deliberately deceptive, but she, she is counting on the media to echo it and hoping the voters uh, are, are fooled. Briefly, we have a minute left. Is your position generally that there were norms discarded, rules discarded, and that stuff needs to be cleaned up in 2020 now that the election was you know, stolen or Joe Biden is illegitimate? How do you try to thread that needle? So, look, voter fraud has been a consistent problem in elections as long as we've had elections. There, there was real evidence of voter fraud in 2020. What I urged was the creation of an election commission that would examine the evidence and make a determination conclusively as to the evidence. I still think that was the right path to take then, and I think we need to be vigilant combating voter fraud going forward. And in the book, I lay out uh, chapter and verse of instances of voter fraud and, and, and what the law is on this. And so I would encourage folks, go to, go to Amazon. You can order it right now. The book came out today. It's already shot up uh, to the top of the bestseller list, and, and, and it's hopefully a fun and useful and, uh, read and, and with, with inside stories about what is really happening uh, in Washington today. All right, Senator Ted Cruz, the book is Justice Corrupted, as he mentioned, out today. Our guest here on The Guy Benson Show, Senator, thank you. We'll be right back.
I'm Guy Benson. You know what sometimes leaves me breathless? Woke Tales. Woke Tales. And it's not just here in the U.S. This is perhaps the U.K. equivalent of what the left-wing activists are trying to do with Latinx, which is to take a gendered language, Spanish, and make it gender neutral for the purposes of diversity and inclusion. Basically, like, change your language, Latinx people, because through our identity-obsessed prism, your language, your culture is problematic. So we're going to reinvent your language for you. And I saw yet another poll out this week showing that Latinos, Hispanics, reject that overwhelmingly. Only about 1% of actual Hispanics accept the term Latinx. It's just made up. It's an activist term on the woke left. And I think it hurts Democrats and progressives. Right? It's a credibility shredding thing. In fact, it's offensive to a lot of Hispanics. I did notice as an aside, Katie Hobbs, the dreadful candidate for governor out in Arizona. She won't debate her opponent. She's bad at answering questions. We played some sound earlier of her. She tweeted out a photo of herself with a hashtag that was supposed to be appealing to Hispanics, but she used the wrong word. It was like Hispanics para Katie Hobbs is what she wrote as her hashtag, but it should be Hispanics por. Katie Hobbs, a different version of four. It's like, do they not have any Latinx staffers that can check the grammar, the Spanish grammar? Maybe that's just the neutral version of it, the gender neutral version of it. Para, not por, even though it's wrong. To that end, along similar lines, over in the UK, this was a story in the Times of London The University of Cambridge has decided to stop teaching German in a gendered way because, like other languages, German has some gender-specific norms. That's just how the language is. The goal in this decision is to encourage students to speak more inclusively because, as we know, there are some hypersensitive lunatics in society who want to completely reinvent the way language works and what words mean because they at least proclaim to be offended by gender-specific terminology. And I've said before, I'll say again, we should treat people politely. We should treat people with compassion. We should do unto others. I don't think we have to uproot our language to mollify and cater to a tiny, microscopic fraction of angry activists. I think that's a line that a lot of people draw, and it annoys them. And, of course, in academia, they're on the cutting edge of insane. So here's this very prominent, prestigious university, Cambridge, over there. They're going to try to teach non-gendered German because it's more inclusive to people who might be offended by sex-specific pronouns. Now, this is prompting warnings... (laughs) Oh, I love this. This is prompting warnings from linguists. Trust the experts, except when you shouldn't, right? Linguists warning, students risk making fools of themselves when speaking with native German speakers. Right? So they'll have this sanitized, gender-neutral German that they're going to teach students at Cambridge for politically correct reasons 
to basically fortify the very delicate feelings of a tiny few. And as a result, with this strange, bastardized version of German now being taught to these students, they might find themselves in, say, Berlin, try to talk to Berliners who might laugh in their faces being like, what the hell are they trying to speak to me? What is this? What strange German variant is this? But I guess speaking a language correctly is less important in some quarters than not offending certain people whose entire shtick, whose entire existence is hair trigger offense. And somehow this is considered more inclusive when in fact it is more incorrect. Would this not be a form of cultural appropriation? I think it would be. You're imposing your preposterous cultural priorities and values on another language and another society. And the result is making the people that you're teaching, indoctrinating with this ridiculous other version, make them look like idiots when talking to people who actually speak that language natively or who live in that country. So enjoy that. The Woke Tales crowd across the pond. Well, it was quite a night in Florida last evening. Ron DeSantis, Charlie Crist, round one of one. Their only debate. How did it go? We have some highlights straight ahead. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Welcome back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Last night was the one and only debate between Ron DeSantis and Charlie Crist, both running for governor down in Florida. DeSantis for re-election. Crist sort of for re-election in his own way. He was once the Republican governor of Florida. Called himself a Reagan conservative. Did Reagan conservative types of things for the most part, not completely. That's certainly how he talked. Then he lost a primary or was in danger of losing a primary, of course, ultimately did to Marco Rubio for Senate, then decided that he was going to pout and take his ball and go home, leave the party, become an independent run anyway. Again, in that same election, this time as an independent, no longer the Reagan conservative. He lost. He got crushed. Then desperate to win some other election, he switched to the Democratic Party. And he managed to get himself elected to a House seat. Although it looks like that might be going away, so he decided to run for the old job back, this time from the opposite party, and everything that he used to believe, he now believes the opposite, supposedly. I don't think he believes anything. He believes in spray tans and power. That's the Charlie Crist way. And he's getting waxed in this election by an incumbent governor who has done, by and large, a very good job and is now leading in the polls in the high single digits, low double digits. So this was their one clash on the debate stage. It was pretty rowdy. I saw Carol Markowitz, one of our frequent guests on this show. She was one of the guests from the DeSantis camp inside the hall. And the audience was told not to hoot or holler or applaud to remain quiet. And she said at the beginning, the DeSantis people obeyed the rules. The Crist people, who appeared to be teachers union activists or union activists wearing abortion shirts, were screaming and cheering and shouting and booing and heckling and all this stuff. Midway through DeSantis' answers, throughout the debate, people would scream liar and other things like that. It was just 
pretty wild. So then the DeSantis people started cheering on their guy and jeering on Charlie Crist because the other side wasn't playing by the rules. So it was it was kind of circus-like at times. Kind of amazing that DeSantis could even continue his train of thought under those circumstances. Like there were times where people were shouting and carrying on and all sorts of noise, and he just plowed ahead with his answers. I don't know if I would have exactly that kind of focus. He was obviously very prepared, loaded for bear against Charlie Crist. If Charlie Crist were hoping for some sort of breakthrough performance to maybe bring the race down to a respectable margin, he didn't get it. I think DeSantis mopped the floor with him. And I think a telling example of this was on lefty social media. People were sharing a clip claiming that DeSantis was completely befuddled and unprepared for a question, a challenge by Charlie Chris about whether he, DeSantis, would carry out an entire second term, a full second term. Of course, the implication being, you know, are you going to run for president or are you committing to serve out all four years? Now, based on the rules of the debate, Charlie Chris was not allowed to ask a question directly of the governor, but he did it anyway. Because I guess following the rules is not something that Chris or his audience were terribly interested in last night. But he challenged DeSantis on it and kept pressing him on it. And there was a clipped video of this that was going around being like, oh, DeSantis looked like a deer in the headlights. He didn't really know what to say. He was flummoxed. He was not prepared for this. What bad staff work, all that kind of thing. Now, the problem for that argument is DeSantis absolutely was prepared for it because he waited for the hubbub to die down. And then he delivered what was, I think, obviously a prepared line on exactly this question that tied Chris to Biden in an unflattering way in cut 11. Well, listen, I know that Charlie's interested in talking about 2024 and Joe Biden, but I just want to make things very, very clear. The only worn out old donkey I'm looking to put out to pasture is Charlie Chris. And you want to talk about you want to talk, talk about standing up for taxpayers. Uh, when Charlie Chris was governor, he ran saying he would not raise taxes. He became governor and he signed off on the largest increase in taxes and fees in the history of the state of Florida. We just enacted the largest decrease in taxes in the history of Florida. He was ready for that. The only worn out old donkey I'm looking to put out to pasture is Charlie Crist. And if you watch the split screen of the clip, even Charlie Crist seems amused by that answer. Like, on his face, he's like, all right, that's that's a line right there. And then instantly, DeSantis pivots back to one of the key issues in this campaign. Did he answer the question? No. Is he leaving the door open to run for president? Yes. Am I happy about that? Yes. But he was clearly ready to go when Chris was trying to push him on the question. And that was his response. And all the people saying, oh, he wasn't ready. Ron, Ron had no idea what hit him with this genius question from Chris. They weirdly cut out the actual answer. They don't get to the point where DeSantis uncorks that one-liner. At another point in the debate, Charlie Crist was talking about how offended he was by the Martha's Vineyard flights, the cruelty of putting migrants who came here illegally 
on a jet and flying them to one of the nicest places in the country. It's just unfathomable cruelty by Ron DeSantis. Of course, we told you about the poll yesterday that shows a majority of Hispanic Floridians support what he did with the migrants flying them to Martha's Vineyard and an even bigger margin of support among actual immigrants in Florida. <laughs> Which is just, oh, that's terrific. So, you know, Chris was trying to make hay out of this. DeSantis firing back, cut 14. You say you're for the secure border, but this is all happening under the Biden administration and the policies that Charlie Chris supports. Uh, we've had millions and millions of people pour in across illegally. We've had record numbers of fentanyl come in. We now see it ravaging our communities like never before. I didn't hear uh, people like Charlie expressing outrage about that. No, because Charlie Chris has been voting 100 percent with Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, as DeSantis pointed out multiple times over the course of the debate. Then on crime, Charlie Chris was boasting about his own record all those years ago about crime. It was a different time under different circumstances. And he was saying, well, crime is up under DeSantis. Not like other places, not even close. And then DeSantis had to point out that Charlie Crist, of course, has changed his stripes completely on this and basically every single issue. He had a good line in this rebuttal as well. DeSantis on crime and Crist cut 17. Charlie Chris has endorsed the idea of, quote, reallocating funding away from the police, I guess, to give to social workers. But if someone's robbing your house, you don't want a social worker coming up to help you. You need the police. And so that's why all these police groups are endorsing me. uh, And they have said that Charlie Chris's crime policies are very dangerous. He used to be tough on crime when six political parties ago. But now he's admitted that he has softened up on crime. But we've seen what's happened in all places all across the country. He used to be tough on crime six political parties ago. A slight exaggeration for comedic effect, but an effective point nonetheless. Now, this is the moment of the debate that I think was the most shameless by Christ. And it's kind of hard to pick one, but this one takes the cake. Of course, one of the big thematic elements of this entire race is DeSantis keeping the state open, allowing businesses to open back up and not shutter their doors and not lay people off, saving a lot of jobs. Of course, the schools, having the schools reopen for that ensuing school year, 2021, a hugely consequential and correct science-based decision by DeSantis for which he was pilloried at the time. And what DeSantis is arguing is we kept Florida free. We kept Florida open. The other side wanted to close things down, keep things closed for much longer, have all sorts of mandates and requirements, and also lock the kids out of schools for a lot longer. His Charlie Chris running mate was a teacher's union boss who was like hosting die-ins and all this crazy stuff to try to keep the schools closed against the science, harming children. The DeSantis administration said absolutely not. And the people of Florida, the children of Florida are much better off because of it. And I guess someone inside the Charlie Chris campaign decided it might be a good idea to try to portray DeSantis as the lockdown shutdown guy. Which is just like insane. It's the exact opposite of reality. It's the opposite of what everyone understands happened, what we all remember. DeSantis was criticized for being not the shutdown guy. But I guess Chris is so desperate and flailing at this point that he tried to go down this route and cut 19. Well, Ron, that's rich. You're the only governor in the history of Florida that's ever shut down our schools. You're the only governor in the history of Florida that shut down our businesses. I never did that as governor. 
you're the one who's the shutdown guy. We need to have somebody who is at the yeah, helm. So, so that was the argument. You're the shutdown guy, Chris said to DeSantis. Of course, Chris has been a salute and vote Democrat for the last couple of years since he switched parties yet again. He's been all about the emergency, the pandemic. In fact, he almost never shows up for work in D.C. because of the remote proxy voting that they have in the House under Speaker Pelosi. He showed up just like a handful of days all year to do his actual job in Congress, just literally phoning in his votes or mailing in his votes on almost everything while he was trying to apply for another job down in Florida. Right? He has been lockstep with the party of shutdowns, lockdowns, school closures, etc. And yet he's trying to pretend that Ron DeSantis is Mr. Shutdown. It's like, well, when I was governor, I didn't ever shut down anything. Well, there wasn't a huge pandemic when you were governor. Like, how stupid do you think we are? DeSantis was under immense pressure to keep things locked down for longer. He didn't do it because he knew the data, paid attention to real experts, and did things over the objections of Charlie Crist at the time. But this, I guess, is their talking point. I I suppose they've decided, well, we're out of options. Let's try to attack him on his strength and sell people on Florida that Governor DeSantis is governor lockdown. It's like, good luck with that, especially when DeSantis can easily come back and say things like he did in Cut 20. He opposed having kids in school. His supporters sued me to keep the kids out of school in 2020. And, ha- and how critical was that decision? We just got the nation's report card, the results from all 50 states. Florida, number three in fourth grade reading and number four in the country in fourth grade math. And if you adjust that for demographics, we are number one in the country in both. That would not have happened if we let Charlie Chris and his friends lock our kids out of school like they did in California and like they did in New York. We did it right in Florida. I mean, it's just a layup. That is the easiest response ever for DeSantis. I wonder if he was caught off guard at all by Chris trying to paint him as the lockdown guy. It was just like so completely brazenly ludicrous. But he was ready to go and ready to punch right back with the abundance of facts that obviously illustrate precisely the opposite. Two more clips for you. One on abortion. This is something that Chris was hammering on. Of course, Chris was Mr. Pro-Life till he wasn't. And now he's not just pro-choice, but a total radical along with almost the rest of his party on this issue. And DeSantis, I think, being a pro-life governor, but also finding a middle ground and highlighting the extremism of the other side. This was his answer on the question that Chris was, of course, very excited to discuss. At least he thought so. Cut 25. I just think we're better when everybody counts. Uh, I understand not everyone's going to be born in perfect circumstances, but I would like to see everybody have a shot. I'm proud of the 15 weeks that we did. I know Charlie Crist opposes that, even though the baby is fully formed, has a heartbeat, can feel pain and can suck their thumb. He also supports sex-selective abortions, which is used to discriminate against little girls. He supports dismemberment abortions, where they literally will tear the baby limb from limb. And he supports taxpayer funding of abortion all the way up until the moment of birth, and that is wrong. That's Charlie Crist's position. His angry union thugs in the audience were screaming and groaning in the background, but if they are actually offended by it, maybe they should take a look at what Chris has actually voted for as a member of the House of Representatives, Mr. Pro-Choice, Pro-Abortion Now, who campaigned multiple times as a pro-life candidate. I mean, the guy doesn't believe a single thing. Last but not least, one of the 
recurring criticisms of DeSantis from the Christ campaign is that DeSantis is a divider. That divisive Ron DeSantis, well, DeSantis was also ready to respond to that one, and this one is going to leave a mark. Cut 22. Denying girls and women athletes the right to compete fairly, I think that's divisive. I think it's divisive to rip opportunities away uh, from our girls in the state of Florida. And you want to talk about divisive. The day after Charlie Chris won his primary, he said, anyone that supports the governor, you have hate in your heart and I don't want your vote. Well, think what that means. I'm endorsed by every police group in the state of Florida. I'm endorsed by the firefighters. I'm endorsed by the truckers, uh, the nurse anesthetists, retail federation, farm bureau. The whole cross-section of the state of Florida is backing me. They do not have hate in their hearts because they reject Charlie Chris. They want to keep Florida going and they want to keep Florida free. Huge round of applause. T.K.O. You want to talk about divisive? How about the guy who said more than half the state, I don't want your vote because you're such hateful bigots. That was the Charlie Chris line day one of the general election campaign in Florida. An awful candidate against a very good candidate with a good record. And I think we might see an early call in Florida two weeks from tonight. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this break, previewing a huge debate tonight in Pennsylvania next. Guy Benson will be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. I know we had some fun recapping part of the debate last night in Florida in the last segment. Overall, I'm not really sure how much these debates really matter. Maybe in tight races where people are getting to know the candidates. I think maybe in Arizona they had the one debate in the Senate race. That might have moved the needle a little bit. Maybe in Georgia, right, they only had one. Herschel overperformed. But for the most part, I think it's noise. One that might be, if not decisive, very influential is happening tonight. 8 p.m., one hour long, News Nation, the Senate debate in Pennsylvania. It's the only one that John Fetterman has agreed to. His staff wouldn't let it go any more than one hour. He's going to have closed captioning so he can read the questions so then he can think about them and answer because of his auditory processing issue that he has post-stroke. And we'll see how it goes. The Fetterman campaign put out a lengthy memo this week, really diminishing expectations for their own candidates, saying Dr. Oz is a TV star. Of course, he's going to be a good talker, a good speaker. You know, our guy has some struggles right now. This is not our best format. So they're basically putting expectations on the floor. I think Republicans would be stupid to buy into that and to say, oh, yeah, Fetterman's not going to be able to do anything. I think they've been practicing. I think they have really been trying to fight their way through a one-hour debate, exceeding expectations, and therefore getting a little burst of publicity out of that. And I think the Democrats underestimated Herschel Walker in Georgia, which I just mentioned which redounded to his benefit, I think Republicans would be very foolish to do the same here, which is what they do with Joe Biden, by the way. They're like, oh, the guy's just going to drool on himself and fall asleep at the debate stage. Maybe use the lectern as a pillow. And of course, that didn't happen. Trump was out of his mind in that first debate. And that benefited Biden, that whole dynamic and those expectations. Dr. Oz has a needle to thread here. He has to be compassionate and patient. He can't look like a jerk. Maybe as a doctor, that could help him. But he also has to make his points, and he can't really back off even though the other guy is sort of struggling physically. That is not the easiest thing to do. But that's the task ahead for Oz tonight. Fetterman, very low expectations. If he really struggles, I think that could be a real problem for him in a very tight race. We'll be watching and breaking it down tomorrow 
on the Guy Benson Show. Final hour coming up. Sean Trendy is here. Where does the election cycle stand? He's one of the smartest experts out there. We will ask him straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's a Tuesday Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show. From the Tony Snow Radio Studios at the Fox News Bureau in Washington, D.C., I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. Every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern, the final hour, 5 to 6 Eastern, is the happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is terrific. Really delicious. It's also alcoholic, so 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. Check it out. They are sold now throughout most of the country, 41 states and counting, thelongdrink.com. For the location closest to you where it's sold, you can also order online, thelongdrink.com. Our website is guybensonshow.com. Podcast always free when the show is over. That's on demand every day. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us there for some extra content as well. With us now is Sean Trendy, Senior Elections Analyst at Real Clear Politics. And Sean, it's great to have you back here. Well, thanks for having me. So about a month ago, we had you on just to give us a lay of the land, how you were feeling, what you were seeing when it came to the overall landscape of the 2022 elections. And we promised to have you back closer to the election. Now we're two weeks to the day from Election Day. What has changed, if anything, in your mind over the last approximately one month? And what are you seeing right now? Well, I think things have kind of converged on where I thought they would a while ago. Um, you know, what, what's happened, two things have gone on. The first is that the president's job approval has continued to improve, but he was, you know, down into the 30s, which meant that he was being disapproved of by people who were going to vote Democratic anyway. So that's improved as he's gotten Democrats back. But what's also happened is that these undecideds have started to break towards Republicans. Um, you know, in, in most of the races we're watching, we're seeing a trend towards the GOP, um, and that's not surprising. The undecideds disapprove of the president, and so they're just like almost every other election we've ever watched. They're moving away from his party. You had said that there was a theory of the case, often popular among people who might not be terribly excited about the polling or the fundamentals. They'll say from time to time, well, this time is different. Yes, the historical patterns say X, Y, and Z, but this time it might be A, B, and C. This time is different. You said a month ago that that theory is typically wrong, and it sounds like you're saying the this time is different, at least in your mind right now, is going to be wrong again. That's my read of it. Now, of course, you know, we haven't had the election yet, so I'm not going to declare victory and, and, and go home uh, right now. But it, it certainly seems that way. Um, you know, seeing the undecideds breaking against uh, the Democrats, and that's exactly what we would expect. Let's talk about the House. There's a lot of discussion around how many seats the Republicans are likely to gain. Almost everyone appears prepared for, eager for, or resigned to a Republican win in the House. But there's a pretty wide range of possibilities in terms of, you know, a big blowout night where they win 
40 or 50 seats versus a much more modest evening, a dozen seats, maybe, you know, 15 or 20, something like that. Based on the historical trends and the current data, what are you thinking on that front? Well, I think what you have to keep in mind is that the way the House is set up, because this is a redistricting year, uh, there aren't that many competitive seats. The parties have done a pretty good job of uh, spreading the seats around so that you know there aren't many seats that voted for Joe Biden by 52 percent, which is his national average. So what I, the, the analogy I like to say is that in a normal election, you're going to be down in a valley. Uh, you're going to be in a place where there just aren't a lot of seats. But as the tide rises, you start to climb the levee on, on either side. And at a certain point, you breach that levee and a bunch of seats come into play. Right now, you know, our generic ballot average is Republicans plus three, which probably keeps us still in the valley and keeps Democratic losses maybe at 20. Um, but if things get much better, there are a lot, for Republicans, there are a lot of seats in that Biden plus 9, 10, 11 range. And if we get to that Republican plus 4, 5 environment, you're going to start to see wins pile up uh, to the you know 40, maybe even 50-seat gain range. How does that translate on the Senate side? Different map, different dynamics, statewide candidates, a lot more attention to the people themselves. I know that Republicans in cycles past have underperformed sometimes on the Senate side, 2010, 2012, some blown opportunities. And there were a lot of people worried that in 2014, here we go again, even in October, early October is like the Republicans should have an opportunity to gain some Senate seats and maybe they're not going to, or it's going to be underwhelming. And then of course, that's not what happened. The dam broke very late in that cycle, but very decisively, and the Republicans netted nine new Senate seats in 2014. I've been wondering in my own mind and aloud whether this year is going to look more like 2018 in reverse or something of a repeat or closer to a repeat of 2014, particularly when it comes to the Senate versus House back and forth and those two different tracks. What's your thinking there? Yeah, so... I've described the Senate as kind of the irresistible force against the movable object. Um, you know, you have the environment, which is terrible for Democrats and should result in Republicans plus four or five seats. But you have the uh, immovable object, which is, I mean, there are just terrible candidates pretty much across the board for the Republican Senate nominations. Um, and so it's not clear and 100 percent clear to me what's going to win out. But I, I think your 2014 model is probably the right one. This isn't a year like 2018 or 2010 where one base is just so amazingly riled up that like they get their vote share early on. Everything breaks over the summer, uh, early early fall. Uh, I think this is more of a year like 2014 where you know people, the undecided voters make up their mind late and vote against the party in power. But again, some of these Senate candidates are really bad, um, and it wouldn't surprise me if a couple of them came up short uh, just because, you know, the candidates do still matter in a Senate race. Well, the Democrats also have some stinkers on their side in terms of some folks that they've nominated in some very important races, and you just sort of watch and wonder who prevails. Are candidates perceived to be bad really as bad as they seem? Are they improving? One thing that is at least interesting and intriguing to me, Sean, and I don't know if you're picking this up as well, but 
it does kind of look like New Hampshire is back in play. I thought that Maggie Hassan was extremely vulnerable early in the cycle. If she had a mainstream Republican or a popular Republican like Governor Sununu against her, I think that race might be over. But she had the fortune of getting this first-time candidate, uh, Don Balduck, who is flawed and has been at war at least until recently with the Republican governor of the state and has said a bunch of stuff. And the initial polls after he won the nomination on the Republican side showed Hassan winning big, you know, eight points, seven points, one or two, I think, had her in double digits. Now the last few polls have that in the low single digits. She is reportedly saying she thinks it's going to be a very close race. New Hampshire tends to be a swing state that swings in wave years. If New Hampshire Senate is actually getting close, what does that mean for some of these other seemingly close races on the Senate map, or does it not really work that way? You know, I think New Hampshire's. I mean, Baldick has said some pretty out there things about, you know, conspiracy theories about vaccines and, and so forth. But I think I think Hassan is right. I mean, she was up big, but she was at like 51, 52 percent. Uh, so and Baldick has been gaining, um, you know, despite just being pounded uh, for years. Now, I do know note that, you know, Mitch McConnell's super PAC is pulled out of there. You know, that might be partly retaliation uh, for Baldick saying he wouldn't vote for McConnell. But, you know, at the other at the other extreme, but McConnell's an extremely transactional politician, and I'm not sure he would just write off a Senate seat. You know, I think this is a seat where, where Hassan is still pretty darn close to 50 percent. So even if all the undecideds break for Baldick, she still would have a chance. You know, she'd win by a couple points. I think this is probably seat number 54 uh, if the if the night just completely goes south for the Democrats. Yeah, it'd have to be a real wave, I think, for New Hampshire to go. It would be seat 54. Arizona looks extremely competitive. Blake Masters has been gaining. He's been massively outspent, but seems to be right there. The governor's race is also tight. Carrie Lake perhaps slightly ahead. That one's looking more and more plausible to me out in the desert. Yeah, that was a race that a lot of people had written off over the summer. You know, Kelly was, you know, was doing well uh, in the polls, was above 50 percent. Uh, and it's just it just seems to have gotten away from him. Um, you know, I think Masters was a better candidate than a lot of people expected once he showed up for the debate and started getting some earned media. Um, you know, I think I think that that one is a true um, that one is a true toss up right now. What about Pennsylvania? I mean, I don't know what to make of this race. Everyone's calling it a toss up. I agree with that. I know the polling in Pennsylvania has been, shall we say, subpar in recent cycles in a lot of ways. Uh, Some big polling misses there. John Fetterman leading in almost all the polls, albeit tight. I just struggle to picture him as a U.S. senator with all of his vulnerabilities and all of his weaknesses. Huge debate tonight, obviously, coming up with those two. Dr. Oz on the Republican side had an awful summer, seems to be hitting his stride. Is it enough? What do you what is your take on the Keystone State, that seat, this electorate and the polling? So I think the key, you know, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That, that, That one really like you just have two really you have a really bad candidate with Oz. You have, you know, Fetterman had a stroke and no one's really, you know, he's gotten assurances from his doctor that he's okay, but like Trump's doctor said he weighed 240 pounds, so, you know, who knows? Um, 
Oz has been surging, and I think this is another probable example of, you know, Fetterman was doing well, but he was always at 47, 48 percent, and those undecideds are breaking, you know, Gun to the head, I say Oz pulls it out by a point or two. A lot will depend, though, on this debate tonight. If Fetterman has a mistake, has a misstep, uh, or or just looks like he's not well, fairly or unfairly, I think you know the clips will play, and he'll he'll pay the price. As you look at Senate races and maybe House races as well, though the polling has been relatively scant, public polling in a ton of House races. If you're a Democrat right now. And you're looking at your candidate and you're seeing where they are in the polls. Let's say, you know, they're down by a point or ahead by a point or two or three, but they're at 45 percent. They're at 47 percent. What's the danger zone for incumbent Democrats right now or Democratic candidates, given the phenomenon that you're expecting among undecideds breaking? What's kind of like that Mendoza line where if you're above it, you might be safe. If you're at or below it, it could be all she wrote on election night. You know, I think I think if you're not 47 percent right now, that's kind of my Mendoza line. If if you're at or below 47 percent, my expectation would be, uh, barring you know some some catastrophic revelation about your opponent, you're probably going to lose. Um, we'll see. We'll see. Um, strange things happen in election, and uh, while I do try to analyze elections. Uh, you know, I, I always say I, I don't have a true crystal ball and, and elections are funky. Uh, but I just things are rough for the Democrats right now. No, I think that's right. And as my final question kind of plays into that. It's on polling. You work at Real Clear Politics. You're not necessarily on the polling team, but obviously you marinate in this stuff. You think about it. You look at historical data. You look at current data. You look at the polling. Perhaps you have a glimpse into polling that some of us don't. CNN was hyping a lot of their polling yesterday from some upper Midwest states. And the Democrats are doing pretty well in these polls for the most part. I think Ron Johnson had a one-point lead in Wisconsin. But aside from that, all the other five or six races, the Democrats had a lead, sometimes a fairly substantial lead. But, Sean Trendy, it was among registered voters, which is just kind of very confusing to me, baffling to me at this point in the cycle, two weeks out, why you're putting out registered voters as opposed to likely voter polls. That's number one. Number two, the CNN poll, and this is not me attacking CNN, just their pollster doesn't have a great track record, especially in some of these states where they were off in 2020, for example, their late October polls by six, eight points, you know, and and that's really significant. When you look at some of these poll numbers coming in and it's registered voters or it's a pollster that's maybe struggled in a given state in the recent past, I think back even to Florida, 2018, they had Ron DeSantis down 12 in the CNN poll in late October. Of course, he won that race. I mean, what is the average news consumer to make of this stuff when it feels like, okay, this might be a concerning number or that might be a heartening number, but I don't really know whether to believe it and who's actually responding to these polls anymore? It just seems like there's a lot of noise and dissonance out there. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is a little bit of a self-serving answer, but I think it's also the right answer, which is, you know, you need to look at the poll averages. Um, If I were on a liberal show right now, they would say, yeah, but, you know, you've got, I mean, come on, like Trafalgar and Inside Advantage, those are GOP polls, you know, so why wouldn't we listen to a a good old-fashioned, you know, honest mainstream media poll like CNN? Um, You know, I think the answer is that, you know, the, the, the Inside Advantage and uh, Trafalgar, whatever the biases of their operators, have a good track record. Um, 
But at the end of the day, you put it in the average. And if some pollsters are a little too rich for Democrats, some are a little bit too rich for Republicans, it, it should cancel out. Now, I, I think people do have to be cognizant that, yeah, they're, especially in Midwestern states in Florida, the polls have not had a great track record the last few cycles. Um, but so they should be prepared for a polling error, but polling errors can cut both ways. In in 2010 and 2012, the polls were actually too rich on Republicans. If if the poll error had been as much towards Democrats as it was toward Republicans uh, in 2012, Mitt Romney would have won handily. So uh, just just be prepared. These are imperfect instruments. Yep. Go out, vote, and then wait and see with the rest of us. Sean Trendy, Senior Elections Analyst at Real Clear Politics. Sean, always appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Well, we had another minor Biden glitch this week. He was honoring the vice president, Kamala Harris, the border czar. It was her birthday, so they had an event. And the president decided to pay tribute to the vice president, but I guess he gave her a promotion in the process of doing so. Listen. But a few years, days ago, it was also Kamala's birthday. She turned 30. Happy birthday, great president. Uh, we know uh, your mom's always with you yes. all the time. So he started with a few years ago, but then he corrected himself two days ago. Then he got to the birthday wishes and kind of slurred his way through a happy birthday to a great president. And of course, that's his job, not hers. Maybe she was secretly elevated to the presidency. Did they privately invoke the 25th Amendment without our knowledge? I'm being told that's possible. If so, I think we have exclusive audio of President Harris's inaugural address given in secret. Listen. The wheels on the bus go round and round. The wheels on the bus go all through the town. I'm going to milk that thing forever. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour is back after this commercial break. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on this Tuesday from Washington, D.C. Earlier in today's program, we said hello to Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas. He's had a very busy week, sort of a chaotic few days in New York. Much to discuss with Senator Cruz. Here's part of that conversation. You took a detour from the bus tour to New York. Couldn't help but notice you had a fun, interesting time at Yankee Stadium, then a fun, interesting time on The View. Uh, In fact, it wasn't just the grief that you got from the co-host of The View, but some people in the audience decided to heckle as well. Here's some of that chaos in Cut 29. Inflation has one cause and one cause only. Inflation in the United States has one cause and one cause only, and that is when the federal government spends too much money. Okay. We have seen trillions and trillions of dollars spent by Joe Biden and the Democrats. Just we do cover climate here, guys. Me. We do cover excuse climate. Excuse me. Ladies, ladies, excuse us. Let us do our job. Let us do our job. We hear what you have to say, but you got to go. 
And so Whoopi, a little exasperated with the protesters, uh, that was probably uh, an interesting memory for you, Senator. Well, it was a ridiculous fun. Uh, Yes, there were (laughs) left-wing protesters who were screaming and yelling and and hurtling uh, expletives. Uh, And and I got to say, I think it rattled the hosts quite a bit. Um, But, you know, look, the reason to go on The View is 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 I think conservatives spend too much time preaching to the choir. And and I think we need to do a lot more talking to young people, talking to Hispanics, talking to African Americans, talking to suburban moms, the folks that are really paying the price for for the policy mistakes of this radical administration, but but who are not hearing a common sense conservative message. And and so I think it was valuable for the folks who watch the view uh, to to hear uh, a bit of common sense, to hear about the book Justice Corrupted, to hear about how dangerous it is to have uh, the Biden administration willing to use the the tools of law enforcement to persecute their their political enemies. When the IRS begins singling out uh, Tea Party groups, conservative groups, the enemies of the White House, dangerous road. I'll tell you, it was striking also, Guy. I, 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 Whoopi Goldberg later in the show uh, got got angry, and she said, you know, as, as, as all leftists in the media are, she's obsessed with January 6th. And she said, you know, you Republicans, you're, you're violent and, and, and a mob. And she said, we don't do that. We're not, we don't engage in violence. <laughs> and I actually laughed at her, and I said, did, did, did you not pay attention to a year – of Antifa riots all over the country where cities all across the country burned. Mm-hmm. And Whoopi looked at me confused and said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know of any Antifa riots. And, that's, and I think that's what her viewers see is they just have no awareness of what's actually going on in the country. Well, you had another sort of moment just like that on the set of The View, and they were all ganging up on you. And I know you were expecting that, including the you know the conservative on, on set. I guess she has to do what she has to do over there. But you were talking about election denialism. That was something that they were coming after you on, and you had a bunch of quotes, right? You had the receipts from Democrats, even from some of these hosts themselves, and there was no sense of self-awareness about that. And when you were calling out the hypocrisy, it seemed like Whoopi Goldberg was like, no, the election denial by Republicans is dangerous and wrong. The election denial by Democrats is good and correct. It was just kind of like making the point for you, even though she may not have quite understood that in the moment. No, look, that, that is exactly right. I pointed out that Democrats have been doing this forever, that Hillary Clinton sat on their show and was illegitimate, an illegitimate president and was not fairly elected, and all the hosts nodded in agreement. Stacey Abrams sh- sat on their show and insisted that Kemp had stolen the governorship in, in Georgia, and they all nodded in agreement. And I pointed out, look, this even goes back well before the age of Trump. Where, where Democrats insisted, Joe Biden insisted that Al Gore won the election and George W. Bush was illegitimately elected. And, and Whoopi's reaction was, well, they all were. And I'm like, wait a second. So it's, it's when Republicans win, it's, it's <laughs> stolen. But when Democrats win, it's not. And she's basically like, yep, that's my position. It, it is. Well, it's just baby thinking. Yeah, no, that, that, uh, that, that's exactly right. I don't know what else to say. I mean, I, I think when 
conservatives or Republicans deny an election wrongly, that's bad and they shouldn't do it. And especially if things get violent, that's awful and I condemn it completely. The other side has done this type of thing. They celebrate their people when they do it. Stacey Abrams became a superstar and very rich because of her election denial. And they're sort of like, oh, well, that's because we're right and we're good and you're bad and you're evil. I mean, it's just like it's not any more complicated than that. And yet it's, it's extremely juvenile. And I think it completely undercuts all of their pearl-clutching, hand-wringing over the election denial stuff. Senator, speaking of, speaking of, preemptively, we have some next election denial, at least the groundwork being laid for it by someone that you just mentioned, Hillary Clinton. I guess she's still out there giving interviews and this sort of thing, and she is predicting that the next election might be stolen by the Republicans. Cut 32. Listen to this. Right-wing extremists already have a plan to literally steal the next presidential election. And they're not making a secret of it. The right-wing controlled Supreme Court may be poised to rule on giving state legislatures, yes, you heard me that correctly, state legislatures the power to overturn presidential elections. All right, so we got a little dash of delegitimizing the Supreme Court in there, which goes to your point, Justice Corrupted, the book that you've written. But when you hear that from Mrs. Clinton, Senator, what is your reaction? Well, it's ludicrous. It's scaremongering. And, and what the Democrats do over and over again is any election that they don't win, that, that they engage in, in, to use their phrase, election denialism. They also uh, brazenly support voter fraud. You know, in, in the book Justice Corrupted, I walk through the evidence of voter fraud, the pattern of it. And, and I also include, for the first time ever, an inside account of what happened on January 6th. Remember, I was standing on the Senate floor leading the Senate objections. My full interview with Ted Cruz, Republican senator of Texas, available online, GuyBensonShow.com. Also on that free podcast every day, no charge to you on demand when the show is over just a few minutes from now. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a debate over a morning ritual for many Americans, myself included. Do we all do this? Is it annoying to other people? We'll get into it next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com for our free podcast every day. So this is something that I'm absolutely guilty of. A study finds that about 6 in 10 Americans, so roughly 60% of the country, habitually hit the snooze button every morning. I don't have an alarm clock. I mean, I do. It's sitting right next to my bed. I don't use it. I use my phone. I would imagine most people probably use their phone at this point. That's just my guess. The alarm on my phone is a triggering sound to me. If I ever hear it out of context not in the morning when I'm waking up. It just makes me cringe. I'm not a morning person, so I never really welcome the alarm. And so I generally schedule the alarm for quite a long time before I actually have to get up. And then I hit the snooze button a few times, and the snooze for me goes, I think, for eight minutes. 
I believe that's what it is. And I'm sort of weird about this where I will set the alarm usually for a number ending in six. So let's say I have to be up around eight o'clock. I'll set it for 8.06. Then it'll snooze for eight minutes. Then I'll let it snooze again. And then maybe I'll get up at like 6.30-ish. This is something that my husband Adam is not a fan of, especially if it's going to go like three or four snoozes. But it's part of my process, okay? It's part of my process. And I have to ease myself out of slumber. I will occasionally wake up feeling incredibly refreshed even earlier than my alarm goes off. And I think that has something to do with like rhythms of sleep and various patterns. And there's something, I guess, called REM sleep. And you want to wake up at a certain point in this cycle. And I guess sometimes I get lucky. This is also true of naps, by the way. Other times, not so much, where I will, at least on paper, I will have had a very good night of sleep, but I feel absolutely exhausted, maybe because a certain part of the cycle was interrupted at an inopportune time. I know there's a whole science behind it. I generally sleep pretty well, so I just kind of go with it. But yes, the alarm is part of the process, snoozing it multiple times, part of the process, and then you finally, you don't hit the orange snooze button, you hit the off button at the bottom of the iPhone, and now it's time to get up. That's how I do it, so I'm guilty. I'm one of these 6 and 10 Americans who do this habitually, if not every day, most days. And I wonder how we do it here around the horn at the show. Dan, are you a snoozer? I am a snoozer. I'm also a two-alarm setter. So I'll set two different times, like one as an emergency, like that's way too late where I won't have time to like really get ready, just in case I shut it off when I'm good. But I hit the snooze button three times almost every morning. Like, exactly. I will not go four. I know I have to get up at that point, but I'm, okay. I, I'll am i hit it three times, and I know exactly Two is too is. few? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I need and to how long is your snooze? Nine minutes, exactly. Yeah, okay. So that's uh, roughly the same as me. I don't usually do the backup alarm. I'll set alarms for other things later in the day, so I don't forget to do important things on occasion, but usually it's just the one alarm for me. Christine, snooze or not to snooze? Oh, I am totally a snoozer. And and a two-alarm, sometimes three-alarm person. I obviously, I have anxiety. So one of my biggest things is, you know, oversleeping. So I will set, say I have to get, most days I have to get up by 6.30 in the morning. So I'll start at 6.20, then I have a 6.25, then I have a 6.30, and then usually I'll have a 6.35, and Wait, then, so hang on. So you have multiple alarms set and you're snoozing them or you are turning off the first alarm and waiting for the second alarm? Correct. Correct. I'll turn off the first one, then wait for the next one. And then usually by okay. the end, I'll hit one snooze. Um, it is – if you looked at my phone, you know where you could set all your alarms? Mm-hmm. It's just – you're just scrolling, 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 scrolling. Oh, I have There's, like two or three. That's it. Oh, I, as many as they probably can have. Like, you're literally scrolling through. <laughs> You've maxed out. <laughs> I had a roommate freshman year of college, and I tell so many stories about this guy because it was quite an experience. He was a real interesting character. I don't want to be mean. But he was a challenging roommate. He moved in mid-year, so at least I didn't have him all year long. But he had many peccadillos and idiosyncrasies. I will not belabor them or 
even enumerate all of them because it would take too long. I'll give you just one small hint. One of his life goals and career ambitions was to be a clown. Also one of the messiest people I've ever met in my life, which is just not going to jibe well with me. And one thing he would do is set multiple alarms and put them all over the dorm room, like literally physically different places around the dorm room. So he'd have to get up out of his bed. He had the lower bunk and turn off these alarms in succession, and it would force him to get up, but then he would get back into the bed. So I didn't really understand what the point of this was. And there were times when he would go out of town, but the alarms were set. So they would wake me up, and I would have to get off the top bunk, navigate the absolute disaster that was our room constantly, just stuff everywhere, his stuff, and then try to figure out where these alarms were. Sometimes they were buried underneath stuff. It's just like dirty clothes, disgusting. And then turn them off. Not snooze them, turn them off. Nightmare. But it was a character-building experience because it just wasn't my cup of tea, that whole situation. I hope he's doing well. Wherever he is, I hope he has had a wonderful life and will continue to have a happy, wonderful career, perhaps as a clown. Just not compatible as roommates. And the alarm clock thing is still somewhat traumatic to me. Wyatt, you said you had an interesting story about this and perhaps a surprising answer. I imagine your alarm going off, obviously, at roughly 4 a.m. for your morning constitutional. You sit down at the end of your driveway waiting for the Wall Street Journal delivery man. If he's even two minutes late, he gets a very polite talking to. And then, you know, you take your walk, you get your coffee, and you have an alarm set for 401 just in case you sleep in. But you typically are just you pop out of bed fully dressed in a vest exactly at 4 a.m. without the assistance of an alarm. That's what I picture. Now you have your real life story. Yeah. So there's a lot there that I have to dispel and unpack. But I I don't really wake up. I don't think that early. I mean, I I usually am up by 620, 630. But I'm like. I'm like everyone else here on the show that I, I do set several alarms. I, I'm not always exactly up at the, the, the time the alarm goes off. So the I am, first one. So you're not out of bed after the first alarm goes off. Yeah, I'm used to, I'm I'm a snoozer. So I, I will oh, hit. All right. So we went four for four here, just for the record. We are all among the majority of Americans who do this. Yes. So my story, my a- antidote here about all this is that on there's only one day of the year where that alarm sometimes doesn't need to be pressed. I'm just up, ready to go. And I, I am excited. I am, I am you know, so happy. And that is Election Day. Every single Election Day, it might be 4 a.m. It could sometimes be, you know, even earlier. So it's, I, not, I, it's not Christmas. It's your personal Christmas. Yes. Election Day. I am up. I do not need an alarm. I am ready to go. I am hyped up on caffeine. And there's like sometimes not even any need. I remember in 2020, I remember in 2018, I remember in 2016, just springing out of bed, ready to go for Election Day. And I know you have this thing where you always say it's Election Day. There's not much that's really going to happen. It's more the night into the day, the next day. Yes. But there's still just that adrenaline and that that excitement that literally I will be out of bed without an alarm, just ready to go. I hate the anticipation of Election Day itself. Because it's just a bunch of little stories and anecdotes and nuggets dripping out that might have no relevance whatsoever, but you're clinging to everything. Like, oh, turnout is strong in wherever, according to someone. 
and Twitter's talking about it, and you just are so starved for real information that you're just obsessing, I kind of sometimes just wish, I know I can't with my job, that I could knock myself out for 24 hours, wake up and have the results shown to me, and I could just move on because it is stressful. But I have to, like, write and talk about the outcomes as they're happening in real time. So it's not really an option for me, but I definitely get pretty anxious as the results come in, especially if things are breaking bad. Like 06, 08, 12, those are rough nights. And there's the fun nights, 10, 14, 16, then kind of the mixed bags, 18, 20. I mean, 04 was such a big one. 04 was the first one I voted in for George W. over John Kerry. What was your first election, Wyatt? 16 or 18? It was 18. 18. Christine's first vote, of course, was for John F. Kennedy. And Dan is roughly my age, so I'm guessing 04-ish, maybe 06 for him. But that's still two weeks away. Wyatt's personal Christmas. No alarm needed, let alone the snooze button, two weeks from right now. And we'll be covering this entire cycle through the tape and beyond on The Guy Benson Show. Back here tomorrow for much more. Same time, same place. We'll talk to you then. Thank you for listening and have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.